Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Demer, CEO of Cinchi, a data collaboration platform that's raised over $24 million in funding. Dan, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So prior to founding Cinchi, I used to work in a bunch of big global banks, uh, always in technology, and did that pretty much from being out of school. Started off as a programmer, started to manage IT teams, and just uh, that's where I got... Uh, let's say, hands-on awareness of the immense complexity that plagues every enterprise organization on Earth today. But uh, yeah, I've always liked to build things. And are you surprised that you ended up becoming a founder and, and CEO? Like, would 20-year-old Dan have ever seen this coming? <laughs> no, because 20-year-old Dan just focused on what was right in front of him, which is kind of how I live my life. It was actually, long story short, it was through my much younger brother who started off following in my footsteps, starting programming, realized he hated it, uh, picked up a, a camera, then went down this whole journey where he ended up uh, going from being a photographer to a videographer to running his own businesses to creating startups and then having different exits. And I was just like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was the creative one. <laughs> and so, uh, it was actually me following my younger brother, realizing only much later in life that I probably should have been doing that a long time ago. I just tend to focus on what's in front of me. So I would call myself an intra printer where I was innovating inside of these organizations, always, you know, cooking something that no one was asking, but that they obviously needed. But I thought I figured it out eventually. <laughs> nice. I love that. And a couple of other questions we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what CEO or founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I would say Steve Jobs, just because of the absolute conviction and attention to detail and passion and fixation on doing something that is not better, but something that is different. What did you think of Apple's new headset? I haven't watched the full stuff, but uh, it looked exciting and uh, hilarious at the same time. i trying to figure out, are you going to see people walking down the street like that or not? Uh, but uh, the potential use of the evolution of that technology is is incredible. So I'm personally excited to get my hands on it. Yeah. Yeah. Feel the same. Now, what about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you? And, and I've stolen this from someone else, but they call it a quake book. So it's a a book that just kind of rocks your whole worldview and, and changes how you think about the world. Do any books like that come to mind? Yeah, for me, it's audio books that do it. But Play Bigger, I would say, was the one that opened my eyes to, you know, categories, the new product in many ways continues to shape what I do on a on a day to day basis. Just it, it reframed how I see the world uh, through a lens that you can't unsee. So that would be it for me. And that makes a lot of sense now with some of the language that I was seeing on your on your LinkedIn and the visuals you had. So I saw that the uh, I think the, the key text was making integration obsolete. And I saw you had obsolete crossed out, which seems like that was a you know, inspired at least by Mark Benioff's play with software and, and everything they were doing there. So we'd yeah. love to talk about that. But before we dive deep into the company, let's just start with a high level. So can you just give us a high level description of what the company does? Yeah, so we sell a data collaboration platform. The simplest way to get your head around that is imagine what Google Drive does for documents and for files and extend that to the world of data. So instead of 
sending copies back and forth. You're collaborating in real time. And ultimately, that's how integration becomes obsolete. And take us back to December 2017 when you were launching the company. What were those early conversations like? And, and what really made you know, this problem be the problem that you wanted to dedicate yourself to solving? So the co-founder, Karen, and I, we, we've actually worked together at a bunch of organizations well in advance of founding the company. And we started actually um, working together at City. This is quite a while ago. And we immediately connected. He's the smartest implementer I've ever worked with. And I've worked with a lot of you know, hands-on technologists and builders. But we stayed connected. And I would say later realized that we should do something together outside of the company once I started to realize that that's probably what I should have been doing a long time ago. And so we actually came up with a list of, I don't know, like a hundred different things. And they were all over the place, like from mobile fruit stands that deliver fruit to your desk to uh, data collaboration platforms that uh, make not only integration, but even apps ultimately obsolete and kind of everything in between. And it was interesting because I tend to like the bigger, bolder, more scary things. And he tends to be more what's actually practical. You know, how do we get a win quickly? And uh, hey, let's get a win and then get another win and another win. But so we started with that approach, which is let's start with the simpler things. And every time we tried to do that, we just ended up saying, you know, why would we build an app if you can build the end of apps, which is our long term view on what we're thinking our platform ultimately unlocks is metadata replaces the data that replaces the code. That's a, a longer story. But uh, so we basically just, we couldn't stop ourselves from falling back to what ended up being the single most complex idea on that list of uh, 100 plus. But it was like we didn't have a choice. It was something was pulling us in there. <laughs> and, that, and that's why we're, we are where we are today. And then is data collaboration, is that the new category that you're pioneering? Yeah. And it's interesting, the evolution of our thinking on that, because data collaboration was the way that we thought of it right out of the gate and that, you know, Google Drive, but for data concept, but uh, we actually went through a bunch of different iterations where we started with kind of core messaging and then we evolved uh, and introduced this concept called dataware. So hardware, software, dataware. And then while that's still part of our narrative, our core is back to its roots, which is data collaboration. And What's clear to me is the world has changed where they are more receptive to our framing than they were back in you know, 2017, 2018, 2019. And part of that, I think, is some of the work that we did. Obviously, we can't take sole credit for that, but just, you know, the world changes. So framing that doesn't work today may suddenly find itself working three, four years later. And it's fascinating because if if you ask ChatGPT uh, about Cinchi and what it is and it was trained on the web in up to 2021, and it will talk about data collaboration. It will use all of our latest messaging, but it kind of skips the fact that we did this, this whole experiment that we ultimately retreated <laughs> with Dataware and went back to data collaboration. So I just found that fascinating. But yeah, data collaboration is the category. And when I did a, a Google search, I see LiveRamp has a definition, Snowflake, and, and then a bunch of others. Yeah, it a you know shared definition. Like anyone writing about this, do they generally agree with how it's defined? If it's been written in the last you know, six months or a year, or is it one of those categories that's so early that everyone defines it in a different way still? Yeah, so there's definitely nuances to how it's defined, but it is converging, and it's quite simply it's the avoidance of copies. So like one of the things that we had been working on for a number of years was pioneering a standard called zero copy integration which is the, I guess, looking at it from a control perspective, but that term zero copies and you know, integration-free data sharing, these are all just different variations on the same core concept. 
So collaboration is the avoidance of copies. That's the, let's say the executive summary that is becoming very consistent, although the exact language and phrasing might be slightly nuanced. It's now converging on that as the core differentiator. Like if I go back to the Google Drive analogy, and it's not just Google Drive, you can take any collaboration technology. If I create a document and I give, you know, 10 people access to that, there's not 10 copies, there's one we're working at it in real time. Whether there's one person or a thousand people or a million people, you're not creating a million copies, right? It's, it's access based. It's not copy based. And that is collaboration on documents and collaboration on data would work in the very same way. It's copyless data sharing real time. And because of your, your mention of play bigger there earlier in the interview, did you do a POV at one point? I would say we did many iterations on a POV, but yeah, absolutely we did. And it's a good exercise. It's a hard exercise, but a necessary one for sure. What were uh, some of the challenges that you experienced when you were doing it? Figuring out. So like one of the things that you're doing when you're thinking category is you're backcasting, which is you're basically picking a future, living in that future, then helping the world get to that future. And, but how far in the future do you get? So like we have a whole theory that is, I'll call it midterm because everything's happened so fast. I won't call it long-term where the evolution of metadata-driven solutions will make it such that application interfaces can build themselves using metadata, such that what you think of today as an application in the future will store no data. It will simply be an experience on data, and it will adapt itself around the metadata and who you are. And So basically what happens in that future is apps become obsolete. And today, apps are the evil technologies that are siloing your data and creating the need for all this copy-based integration and all, and all these pain points. So initially, our thoughts were apps were the enemy, right? You need an enemy. And then later, we realized that that's too far out into the future for people to really get their head around because it kind of makes sense, but it's so far out there. It's like talking about, you know, electric vehicles uh, of, I don't know, uh, 20 years ago when you knew it was theoretically possible, but practically, you know, no one would really end up be buying them en masse. And so we ended up going a little bit into the less distant future while still being consistent. So that took a little while. That was complicated to figure that out. But the enemy that we landed on was integration, which is the copy-based movement of data that, of course, it's the apps that are causing it, but the problem isn't the apps. The problem is the fact that we have to do copy-based integration. But that, that always complicated to figure that out. And is there anyone who disagrees with that vision strongly? Be like, who is this Dan guy talking about getting rid of integration? You can't just get rid of integration. Like, are there any people who disagree with your views? Pretty much initially everyone. When I'm explaining to people what it's like to uh, do what we do, it's kind of like, imagine if you discovered that sleeping is actually evil. Uh, it's actually a byproduct that you're, I don't know, lacking a particular vitamin or something. And you've discovered this. And you have the cure for sleeping and try selling that to the world. It's going to take a little while for people to accept the fact that they actually don't need to sleep. In fact, sleeping is a consequence of a disorder or, or a disease or, or a deficiency or something that can be overcome. And, and now they can avoid sleeping. And I don't know, maybe they live twice the life. So if you picture that type of a scenario, like today, integration is perceived as good. But that doesn't mean that can't be changed, right? You can see ads from the not too distant past, you know, the more doctors than any other smoke uh, camels, right? Like uh, smoking was prescribed, like it was good for you. That's, what's good for you today is often learn later that it is not good for you. And guess what? That is very true of integration. It is going to be the death of organizations if they're not careful. What about lightning strikes? Did you do any lightning strikes? 
I would say that's where we haven't done what I think we should have done that we will do more so going forward. So love the concept and I can absolutely see in this modern age, the necessity of that and it only grows over time. But I would say, no, we haven't done it to the degree at which we should have. What about alignment with the team and, and getting everyone really bought into this POV, especially given that it's changed a few times and yeah. then just in general, getting people to you know, believe in a new category. What have you done to get that alignment? A big part of it, and I, I would say that this happened somewhat organically versus something that was consciously engineered is the way that we've grown the company and hired people is we realized very early on that when people hear the message and then they become curious and then they understand it, they get uh, very passionate about it, actually. Like uh, we see that in customers, we see that in employees. And so the, the fact that the people applying for the roles and often cases were actually seeking us out, meaning they're here because of that vision, because of that point of view, because they feel the pain of that. And as a result, like even in, in this age where, you know, we've gone through with COVID and, you know, all these different factors that can create environments of high turnover and stuff like that, we've had, you know, very high retention. We've had very good conviction. We have a very passionate workforce that is aligned to making integration obsolete. And why do you need to make integration obsolete? Uh, well, it's because it's the cause of all this complexity in the world. And it also prevents people from ever getting control over their data. So to the point where there are there are people like myself who believe that if society doesn't embrace this en masse, it's the end of society as we know it. It's it's an inevitability. There's no other way. It, the data will be treated with respect, similar to how you treat money. And guess what happens if you copy money? What happens? You should go to jail. <laughs> Big sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, anything of value, you can't copy. You can't copy humans. You can't copy intellectual property. You can't copy money. And why? Uh, well, there's good reasons for that. Yet we live in a world where historically you've been forced to create endless copies of data. Like how whack is that? Like it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it's not because people want to. No one sits there and says, hey, I'm a bank. I want to make thousands of copies of your sensitive customer data. They don't want to do that. Why? Because there's been something missing in the world that solved that problem. And that missing is data collaboration. Have there been any major downsides as you've pursued this category strategy? I feel like online and LinkedIn, everyone talks about all of the benefits of being a category creator, but are there any downsides that you've experienced? Definitely lots of downsides. Like anything, there's always good and bad. It's, it's never so binary. And even these downsides, they have a, a hidden upside, but really getting into the guts of the the, the psychology of, of who you're targeting and you know how they see the world and what words need to be said and the whole you know languaging phenomena, the that's very, very hard to do. And if you were, quite frankly, just building an app for that, like trying to create a, a better something, you wouldn't have to so much concern yourself with that. So it, it forces the development of muscles that you might not have otherwise needed. But what I do believe is that the development of those muscles could then be extended, even if you were operating in that type of a context, meaning it forces you to create superpowers in terms of understanding the power of language, especially that's language with language and visuals and uh, and whatnot. And quite frankly, a lot of people think you're crazy, especially in the early days. So, you know, if you're truly creating a category or if at least you believe you are and no one thinks you're crazy, then there's something wrong with that. <laughs> but that's not always fun, having people think you're crazy. Yeah, it's one of those things that like kind of sounds cool, I think, to a founder, like you want people to think you're crazy, but when you're in the midst of it, it's probably not, not very fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And occasionally it will create this glimmer of self-doubt, but that becomes very short-lived. 
I want to also ask you about the Data Collaboration Alliance. So that looks like that's a, a nonprofit that you've set up to really just evangelize this category. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. So can you talk us through you know the rollout of that nonprofit and the benefits of it, and really just like the mission and how you how you tie that into your category goals? So we have the Cinchi Company, and then we have the Alliance, which was set up to enable partnerships with others that are, let's say, philosophically aligned and ultimately plant the roots to create the the ecosystem that ultimately one needs to create if you're creating a category. And what we, rather than Cinchi Inc. pushing for standards, it's going through the Alliance where we're working with other organizations and data privacy experts and other such things. And it creates a lot less less friction and anyone can join, right? Uh, so it's a true initiative because ultimately what we're trying to do is is create the category at all costs, knowing that if we're the ones that are the driving force behind that and accelerating this inevitability is that's going to put us in a really good position regardless. So we truly want other people to participate and contribute. And so that's that's part of it. And I'd say that's actually the the major piece of it, which is creating the community that works collaboratively on the standards that Cinchi, of course, already adheres to, but opens it up such that others can adhere to those as well. And uh, that zero copy integration standard I mentioned earlier was the first such example. But yeah, I don't think that would have happened without that separate vehicle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And are you also doing lobbying then and trying to influence legislation? That's on our strategy, but we're not actively executing on that, at least not yet. Although we found ourselves doing that uh, almost without intent to do so, just because we've got a number of politicians that are interested in, in what we're doing, especially with the formalization of the standard. But no, it's not something that we're doing today. And sorry, now I remember what I was going to actually add to that is the nature of data collaboration is actually quite interesting in that there's a long-term play, which is it's the only way that our children will be able to live in a world where they can have control over their data. but a CIO isn't going to buy that, right? Even if he has kids or she has kids and they're not going to buy it because there's no ROI on that that is immediate, right? Uh, so our go-to-market is there's a long-term inevitability that we want to showcase, and that's the alliance that is advocating for that and pushing that. And the short term, though, is the way to enable the shift in the world to create that future where people control their data is the movement away from copy-based integration towards access-based collaboration, which coincidentally is a huge efficiency play because half of the IT budget of any organization on earth that has any degree of complexity is wasted building integrations and the maintenance of that. So we sell it off of the efficiency of getting rid of the integration friction, but our ultimate end goal is to create that world where people control their data. So there's a super long term and then the short term, but they converge because they're actually the same thing. The same shift results in both consequences. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. And when I was looking at the Alliance website, one thing that jumped out to me was the caveman in the picture. I thought that was funny. And then you know, going back to your LinkedIn, you have like the kind of no smoking sign and the smoke coming off integration. You don't seem to take brand 
like super serious and doesn't seem like it's like a boring enterprise B2B brand, which is like typically what I see. You know, typically B2B tech companies are just boring. They all look the same, but I'm guessing on your end, this is a very intentional strategy, right? To to really do something different with the brand. It is because the, like I've been on the buying side in enterprise contexts and you're exactly right. It's boring as hell. And it's also not only boring, it's filled with vaporware and, you know, the sales process of PowerPoints and promises. And how do I make the decision that that won't get me fired regardless of what the outcome is? Like that's, that's just how it has operated for so, so long. And the reality is the people who work at these people are also outright. So thinking of them ultimately as, as consumers and the fact that you need to stand out in order to get people to at least put their eyes on you. So you need to, you need to differentiate, you need to be real, right? So like uh, the big, bold messaging works incredibly well for us. Like when we go to an event, like we were just at uh, a Gardner event, we were sponsoring a booth just a couple of weeks ago in, in Vegas and, you know, the no integration sign was up there and we were giving away our no integration swag and, uh, you know, the smoking, like all that stuff was there. And I, I did a presentation and I would say at least a third of the traffic that came to our booth. And we were definitely one of the busiest booths at the event was what does this mean the obsolescence of integration tell me more and it's a great conversation starter and it's not bullshit and i think a lot of founders probably want to be fun and and not be boring but i think they just get scared and they say you know my buyers are serious people like they're enterprise like they're not going to take this seriously if we're funny have you seen that ever happen when you're on the buyer side or just you know in your journey so far as you've really embraced this approach with your brand have you ever seen it hurt you in any way not yet. Uh, not yet. That's a thing. Fingers crossed. I've definitely seen it help us. So uh, at the end of the day, if it gave us a couple of bumps on the head once in a while, it would still be okay. Because first of all, it, it is differentiated and it's legit. It's like we are encouraging even our own people to be themselves, right? It's, I don't know if you've also seen, like we, we do these avatars. We have an artist that does renders for every employee and even select customers and stuff like that. And they're, they're featured everywhere. And Cinchy TV, you know, the stars of the show are the employees. And yeah, we have a philosophy of show, not tell, because no one wants to be told they want to be shown. So product first and, you know, it's, it's all real, uh, bold, but legit back it up. And I don't honestly think just the world craving that. Yeah, totally agree. And you mentioned Gartner there. What role does Gartner play in creating this category? And are you working with them outside of the event you sponsored? And then what about the peer review sites like G2? Yeah, so we are. So, you know, the Gartners, the Forrester, the 451s, the Eckersons, et cetera, they're, they're important, especially if you're selling into enterprise. And one of the ways that they are important is Although there's debates around their relative importance in the present versus the past and how that's going to trend in the future and all that, there's different schools of thought on that. But regardless, I can say with confidence that people do listen to them and they actually have smart people who work for them. So like I've personally spent, I'd say hundreds of hours over the past years in various interactions with various analysts. And sometimes we get into heated debates and, you know, share our point of view. And what gave me the, I guess, the will to continue living after all of that is seeing it come out in their research where sometimes it will like we have a very high number of mentions relative to companies of our size and uh, great awareness there but there's so much that has come out where it does not mention Cinchi, but it basically is our point of view in the voice of someone who we met with and influenced and that is amazing because that's one way of many to begin the process of getting the world to reframe right 
and create the hunger for the food that you sell, right? And what we found is that they may, because everyone wants to be the creator. Everyone wants to be the inventor, the innovator. So they'll introduce their own terms, but it's describing the same phenomena. So you'll hear things like data fabric or data mesh or all these different concepts. But at the end of the day, they're all incomplete versions of the broader vision of data collaboration. And do you view it as you need Gartner to eventually use that term for a category? Like, Is that success for you with this category creation play? Or would that just be nice to have, but it's not how you're going to define whether this category strategy worked or not? Yeah, so we're not going to define if it worked or not based on that simple data point. So one of the things that we've done that is part of our strategy is we are designing a category. We are, you know, naming it, framing it, claiming it, all that, all that good stuff. But we are doing what we call category hijacking, which is we're going to, uh, you know, surf whatever the biggest wave is, but intercept that demand and redirect it. It's imagine if you uh, had introduced the mobile phone to a world that had corded rotary phones and your competitors had cordless phones for the home where you, if you remember those, you know, you're attached to a base unit and if you go 25 feet, so you, you have to get static and, you know, you can intercept that demand because guess what? A mobile phone is also a cordless phone, but a cordless phone is not a mobile phone, right? So you can skip the generation and go right to the end. And the reason you're looking for a cordless is you want freedom, right? It's a freedom phone. Like it's, you're not uh, attached to a base. You can go anywhere you want. So that's very much our, our strategy is if we have, you know, that eventual unification of data technologies, the separation of data from code, the enablement of universal controls, the avoidance of copy-based integration, and you're, you happen to be looking for, you know, insert data buzzword here, and there's lots of demand on that, excellent. We're going to intercept that demand and redirect you. And how we're going to win is not because we're better than what you're looking for, it's because of our difference, right? And that brings me to like one of the lessons that we've had to learn is Different, not better, is amazing at getting attention, but it doesn't translate to immediate sales. So what we've had to adapt is we are different, not better is the hook. But when it comes to, let's say, a sales process, we are actually better because we are different. And that may sound like such a small shift, but it's actually a game-changing shift for us. Is <laughs> that realization. And I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And that's super fascinating. Now, outside of analyst relations and outside of the nonprofit that we talked about, are there any other tactics that you're deploying right now to really help evangelize this category or, and tactics that you're just really seeing move the needle? So one is our use of just video-based content. So we've had this vision from even before the company was formalized uh, of, you know, just seeing even my kids watch videos and the you know, the evolution of long form videos to extreme short forms. Uh, and I don't know, maybe their kids will watch nanosecond videos <laughs> if, if it keeps getting shorter, but as sort of retention of the band, but just embracing that and can I go in all in on that? And, you know, we launched uh, TV, which is almost like an alternate site to Cinchi.com. And of course you can navigate back and forth, but .com is for the, let's call it an old school site, but TV is what I'd call it a new school site, which is you know, where you can binge watch on all things data collaboration, not just Cinchi. So that's actually working really, really well because a big part of category is, of course, the education that goes alongside that and allowing customers to become essentially uh, self-educated and creating a, um, a portal that can act as, as a destination. And I remember in the early days, like if you go back a few years when we started to get uh, inbound prospects, because initially there's no inbound, you know, if you're doing category. 
when we started to do that though, and they would hit our site and they would go to Century TV and they would talk about how they would watch like literally hundreds of hours of the content. Like it was crazy. And that just reinforced our conviction to that. So like the best lead that we could ever get is one that stumbled across us, went to our site, watched an initial video, and then many, many hours of content watching later, they reached out to us and they're already educated. They already know the story. They've already seen the platform, right? And, and that's a huge time saver when you think of like sales cycles and processes and overheads and, and whatnot. And, and that's the future. One of the things that I believe in really deeply is this idea that every B2B tech company needs to embrace the mindset that they're going to become a media company. And as I was looking yeah. through Cinchy.tv, I would have to guess that you have a similar belief or that's what you're trying to yeah. do here as well. Yep, absolutely. So we've stood up what we call Cinchy Studios and that's our content factory to the point where Cinchy uh, TV is actually built using Cinchy. So you can watch the making of Cinchy TV. It's one of the original series there, but, uh, and I could totally see, although we don't market this, we market the broader capability of data collaboration, but I can see organizations in the, in the future, all creating their own, you know, white labeled version of the studio concept. And when we did this a few years ago, it was pretty, I would say even controversial to some like enterprise buyers aren't going to watch video that that's, uh, I heard that so many times, but it's like, well, wait a minute, aren't these humans? Uh, if they're humans, they watch video. Sorry. It's. And if they don't, uh, when they retire, someone else will. Like it's, there's no question about it. It's not like they live on a different planet and they're different species or something. They're all just humans. But that wasn't true pre-COVID for sure. But it is changing. So we are seeing that that phenomena is happening more and more. So I remember that Salesforce launched their equivalent. And my initial reaction when I first saw that was like, I guess I was thinking that there was some relationship between that and uh, someone who worked at Cinchy or something. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was eerie. And, and then I realized, no, we're not that special. It's just, this is just a shift that's happening and everyone's going to realize it, which is true, honestly, of, of any shift, right? Uh, like even the way I explain data collaboration to people is uh, it is an inevitability. And if what you're creating is to be a category, it is to be inevitable with or without you. All you can do is accelerate it. It's kind of like uh, Terminator and Judgment Day. You may stop at one time, but it's still going to happen, right? And, and maybe Skynet comes back as Legion or like it's, but there's an inevitability to it. So the same is true of anything that, that changes the world. If it didn't happen when it happened, someone else would have made it happen. And I think anyone listening in, you know, this stuff all sounds great. Create a category, build your own media brand, have a studio, like all that sounds great. But I'm sure the question in the back of everyone's mind is, okay, Dan, this sounds cool, but. What about ROI? How do I measure ROI and how do I think about ROI? So how do you think about ROI and how do you justify some of these activities? Because I'm sure it's not an easy buying cycle, right? Where they go on Cinchy TV, then you know, end up going to the sites and, and buying you know, an hour later. I'm sure it's a much more complex sales cycle. It is. And actually, we have a, a superpower, which is we apply data collaboration and collaborative intelligence to that problem that actually gives us a level of insight that you wouldn't otherwise think possible. But that wasn't true in the early days. And and honestly, I think at least for us, and I don't know if this is what everyone should do, sometimes you just have to rely on your gut. Sometimes you just know. <laughs> and I know that sounds strange and, and getting, you know, if you're trying to raise funding and stuff, you know, just off of your gut. That can be very, very hard. But when your gut tells you something, and even if the data says something else, but your gut is telling you something, listen to your gut and do what you know needs to be done that makes sense. And the results will then uh, fast follow that. And not everything can be measured. You know, maybe one day it all can be measured, but that's not that day is not today. So 
It is difficult, but I would say, at least for us, we try not to let ourselves get distracted by that. But it's a fair question to ask as you're going through it, for sure. Yeah, that's such valuable insight. Yeah. All right. Now, the the final couple of questions here for you, Dan, I know we're almost up on time. So what's the number one piece of advice you'd have to a B2B tech founder who's considering creating a category based on everything that you've learned so far? I would say it's don't go half in. (laughs) You have to go all the way or none of the way. You can't just dip your toes. That would be it. And every time I would have or anyone in the company would have, let's say, not approached a particular piece of work with full throttle, it just doesn't work out. (laughs) So uh, you got to be all in. And final question now, what's next for Senshi? Can you paint a picture for what's going to be happening over the next three to five years? Yeah. So, you know, we just closed our our last round and uh, we're heads down executing and growing. So just continuing to grow that business. And the next big capability that we will be launching is the ability for organizations who create innovative solutions that are integration free to be able to package those up and make those available to other organizations, i.e. a zero integration uh, marketplace. So look for that over the coming years for sure. But uh, right now we're focused on enabling organizations to build these integration-free applications initially for themselves. But I'm personally excited when you're able to install an enterprise app with the same ease that you can install an app on your phone, one click done, because there's no integration friction. And that integration friction is the barrier that limits enterprise software sales for every software company on the planet right now. So I can't wait for that to just no longer be a problem. Amazing. I love it. All right, Dan, we're up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. If people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build this company and category, where should they go? Cinchy.tv. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing lessons about category creation. As you know, it's a, a very niche topic. There's not a lot out there. So it's always really fun and enjoyable to hear from someone who's actually doing it and has a well thought out strategy. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Take care. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.